The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show today. Thanks for listening to the conversation. And I really love that you're listening to this podcast because that means you're interested in the same things that I am. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe. Tell your like-minded friends that they can get this wherever they get their podcasts. And I will continue to bring you some fascinating conversations. So to get into this one today, I'm just going to give you a little uh, glimpse into my childhood. So when I was a kid, the TV series, The Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno was really popular. And Bill Bixby was Dr. Bruce Banner. But in the TV show, there are some differences in how Bruce Banner became the Hulk. So I had to research this a little bit and dig into the Marvel Comics world because I don't really know anything about comic books. But according to the Marvel Comics series, Bruce Banner became the Hulk after exposure to gamma rays while saving the life of some guy named Rick Jones during the detonation of an experimental bomb. So in the TV show, as I remember it, Bruce Banner was studying people who displayed amazing feats of strength during a crisis, like a car crash or some other event. And I remember there was one woman who lifted up a burning car to save her child. And so Dr. Bruce Banner was actually interested in how this was possible. So this all kind of leads in into my guest, believe it or not. So when I started reading the book, Break Through the Limits of the Brain by Joseph Selby, he shares several accounts of people who have had extraordinary physical, mental, and creative experiences far beyond what is commonly considered possible, much like Dr. Bruce Banner was studying in the 70s TV series, The Hulk. So Joseph's book book explores the idea that we are so much more than we think we are and that there's more to our capabilities than we're aware of. So I just really love that. And as I was reading it, it made me think of the Hulk. So hence my long introduction here. But I love to explore these ideas. And I'm really happy to welcome Joseph today to the conversation. He joins me from the Ananda community in Northern California, which sounds like an idyllic place that I have to visit. So welcome to the conversation today to the podcast. I'm happy you could join me. Oh, I really am uh, happy to be here. Did you ever see the Hulk in the 70s? I may have seen some <laughs> of the episodes, but it wasn't something I watched uh, <laughs> on a regular basis. Right. Well, I, I noticed the the similarity in what Bruce Banner at the time was studying that maybe we are actually all hulks. We have the capability mm-hmm. to have that power. And you delve into that a little bit in the book. And that's what we're going to kind of get into today in the conversation. So in the book, you debunk scientific materialism's brain-based explanation for consciousness and intelligence. And I thought that was so interesting and a great place to start because some people think 
and my husband's probably one of them, that the brain is a supercomputer encased in, you know, these meat suits of bodies of blood and, and bone and all that stuff. And, and the brain's kind of running, running the show. But there's there's more to the explanation of actual consciousness and what that means. So maybe we could start and you could tell me your explanation of consciousness. Well, the the debunking comes basically with uh, ease because there's absolutely no demonstration ever been made how the physical firing of electrical impulses in the neurons in our brain can create consciousness. We know it can send signals throughout the brain and into the body and from the body back into the brain. Uh, and it's a very efficient, sophisticated network of electrical impulses, but nobody in a lab or even really very uh, in, in a very detailed way has even theoretically come up with an explanation for how all that turns into this amazing experience that we have, right? You, you have a, a, a spherical picture of the world around you that's built up from impulses from all of your senses. You have a movie that it is true to all five senses going continuously how do these, you know, essentially organic wires do that? Well, I don't think they're ever going to figure out a way that the brain does that. Um, people who are thoroughly convinced that the brain will just basically say, well, give it time, right? Give it time. It's already had to be given decades <laughs> and there's still no explanation. So I think it's not a stretch to just look at what the mystics and the saints and sages say about consciousness and to what the uh, early sort of founding fathers of physics say about consciousness. And they all say that it, it exists independent of the brain. Consciousness is a, a ground of creative being out of which all things come. It's more true to say that consciousness creates the brain than that the brain creates consciousness. I think that's so fascinating. And I was reading a book uh, a few years ago by a guy named Dr. Sam Parnia, and it was called What Happens When We Die. And in the book, he explains an experiment. And I think this was done in the UK where he was they were trying to prove the existence of consciousness with patients that had heart attacks or heart events and that would leave their body and come back. Mm -hmm. And so they put things on the ceiling uh, over their beds. And then if they had one of these events, they were trying to see if they could, like people would say they described conversations and things that happened when they were out of their body. And I I'm, I'm, can't remember the, the actual outcome of, of the experiment, but I guess it was inconclusive. But it ended where basically he said what you did, that no one can really prove or disprove that existence of consciousness. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, that's so that, that's such an amazing concept to even think about. And. And I wanted to ask, too, because so in the book, you talk about how we exist simultaneously in both a subtle and physical reality and and our thoughts, emotions, all these 
things, memories originate non-locally. And this is so fascinating that it, it originates not just from the, the glob of cells that is our brain, but like you're saying, it's, it's something else. Well, there, there are two realities we exist in simultaneously. And this is very challenging for most people to wrap their brain around because we, when we think of another reality, we think of someplace else, right? That, you know, there's another realm, there's another, uh, a place that you could be. But the second reality in which we simultaneously exist is interpenetratingly present. It exists at a higher frequency. It exists um, in a, in, in, a very real way in contact with every atom in our body. And yet it's not visible to scientific measurement, but it is supported by uh, physics in very significant, very specific ways. M theory is my favorite example of support for this notion that there is a, an interpenetrating, uh, absolutely congruent reality that we are a part of, M-theory posits that there is a uh, a vast realm, vast interpenetrating realm of pure energy that sustains the physical universe and in fact creates the physical universe. So if you can uh, extend that thought to there is a subtle universe of which we are a part that is sustaining our physical counterpart, which we know as our body. So these two realities, coexistent reality, uh, realities, allow for consciousness to be subtle, not created by the mechanism of the mind. It allows for our thoughts, our feelings, our memories to originate somewhere else. Just one fact about memory is very, very telling. We have a hundred billion neurons in our brain. It's a lot of neurons, right? And so the thought is that somehow all of our memories are stored in those neurons in some fashion. And usually the fashion that is uh, suggested is that we do it the same way that a computer does it. That there's some sort of binary system that stores memories. Well, one high definition movie requires more transistors on a um, computer chip to be stored than all the neurons in our brain. So it would take <laughs> all of our brain to store half of a high definition movie, but we have a fast memory. We have a, just a mind boggling amount of memory and it comes to us not just as thoughts, but uh, visually, we can remember smells, we can remember whole scenes, we can remember interacting with people, we can remember how we felt while that was going on. So it's just really physically impossible that all that memory could be stored in the physical brain. And the same goes for emotion and thought. There has yet to be any uh, plausible way in which thoughts originate from the from the brain or that emotions originate from the brain even. But there's a lot of evidence that they might be 
non-local. Thus, we have scientific support for what is really a ancient spiritual teaching that we have an astral body and we have a physical body and that they're intimately connected. So every moment of our day, we are in both. So we think we're having a thought that is coming from our physical reality because that reality is the one we're most aware of. But it's just as real, just as immediate, even though it's non-local. It's just not originating from the physical brain. So this dynamic that we have going, um, the way I put it in my book is that we always have one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. We always have um, the physical reality of our body that we operate within. And then we have this subtle reality that in many ways is far more important, far more who we are than the physical reality. Well, I'm very interested in that subtle reality. And I even wore my Ram Dass t-shirt for a conversation today <laughs> in honor of someone who's done a lot of exploration into those realities. You describe some experiences that you've had. I had an experience I, I want to share with you that I thought I, I was crazy, but I was in a, a meditation group with other people. And we started doing this when I worked at Hay House, where some of us would get together and we'd, we would meditate together. And when I first started meditating, I thought, well, this is ridiculous to sit in a room with pe people and not talk. Right. But then I really started to crave it and I really loved it. And so we would do this, you know, a couple of times a week. And there was one point where I reached a, a space in the meditation where I, I got up and and walked out of the room thinking the meditation was over but i was still sitting in the room mm. right and there was a second where i thought how is that possible and then i kind of like snapped back into like i woke up or i snapped back into my body and i looked around like didn't you guys see that like did you guys experience that and nobody nobody did and they're like no oh, what are you talking about but to me, that was kind of a glimpse of that non-local reality, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, have you experienced that? Uh, not specifically like that, but, you know, feeling myself being beyond my physical body is something that will, will come to me in meditation. And I think it's a, a fairly common thing for people. Actual out-of-body experiences are more rare, but... They do happen, um, and they have that experience of, you know, the the common out of uh, out of body experience is the one that happens in near death experiences, where they float up from their body off of the operating table, and as you had mentioned already, they're aware of conversations taking place that uh, they couldn't possibly be aware of because their body is down and out and. Uh, yet they travel all over the hospital. So the potential for that to happen is innate to us because we're not we're not this physical body. So if we can shift our focus of attention, our focus of awareness more to the astral, the non-local energy body, then these kind of experiences become, more and more possible, more and more common to us. Um, 
out-of-body experience is really not the ultimate goal of meditation. It's kind of a side effect or a side effect of the reality that our physical body is only part of our reality. I think the the deeper thing that happens in meditation, and it can happen simultaneously with an out-of-body experience, but the deeper thing that happens is the great release and um, letting go of the, the, the conscious mind and allowing ourselves to expand into a, a more superconscious level of awareness. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Well, that's where I want to get to, Joseph. <laughs> I want you to tell me how to do that. And in the book, it you explain some different exercises. And I really hope people pick this up because I think exploring these realms and knowing that it's there and that we can access it is really fascinating and very empowering. And actually, when that experience happened, it was a little scary because it was a split second that there was just that awareness of kind of looking back and then what? But it gave me a glimpse of, of mm-hmm. what's possible. And right. so I've been really fascinated with, with that ever since then. And I'm curious of your uh, opinion on what he, and you did say in the book that these states can be achieved through psychedelics. You know, there was all the, L- yeah, I mentioned Ram Dass, all the LSD experiments that happened in the 60s. There's a reemergence of that study now. And people are really becoming excited and fascinated about exploring this, you know, the effectiveness effectiveness of psychedelics like ayahuasca and LSD to reach that state of awareness. But you, you say we don't really need that. And so I was wondering, what do you think about that, that people are kind of looking back to that research from, you know, the sixties and the fifties into those things? Well, there's no doubt that uh, psychedelic drugs, hallucinogenic drugs, can put you into altered states that makes you more aware of your subtle self, your subtle body, than your physical body. And you your perception changes. These initially, for me, at least in the in the 60s when I was taking psychedelic drugs, were really just wild and wacky uh recreational experiences. Uh, you know, you, lots of energy, you stay up all night, you, you, your perceptions change. But when you come down from it, the next day, you're just the same person you were the day before. You're not fundamentally changed by that experience. Now, some of what's happening with, um, the, as you say, the, the emerging new interest in psychedelics is that it's being used very carefully in uh, clinical situations to help people with things like PTSD uh, to to help them essentially drop the vice grip set of emotions that they're being held in and let go enough to realize that they can let go, 
that there is a reality beyond this kind of recurring and and uh, extremely unpleasant emotional experience that they're living and reliving and living and reliving. Um, and it's being extended to depression. It's being extended to many things where, where essentially people are stuck, that they can't get past certain feelings and they need to be able to know uh, directly and without doubt that they can experience something else. So I, I like to see that. And then of course, ayahuasca, um, most people go you know, to South America or other places to have that experience. But I think the interesting thing there is that most people are accept accepting that they need a guide. They need someone to, to help them take that uh, essential experience and guide it into something more useful, guide it into something more expansive. So I don't um, want to, you know, uh, say that hallucinating experiences can't be useful, but I think once you've had them and they awaken you, then the question becomes, what next? You can't literally and healthily do them every day. So what meditation can do, even without the beginning point of the hallucinating experience, is take you into states of consciousness that are quieter experiences. They don't have all the fanfare of hallucinogenic experience where everything changes and the people next to you look different and you see their astral form, et cetera. Meditation is much quieter, much calmer, but it builds up the core experience over time, which is that release and relaxation and that sense of being a part of something beyond the physical body. And that's where its real power comes in. And in terms of my book, Break Through the Limits of the Brain, one of the things I talk about a lot is how meditation uh, rewires the brain to have these experiences. And rewiring comes with repetition. So the more often you do something, the uh, more rapidly your brain will create neural circuits to support that experience or that behavior or that physical ability. So the more you meditate, the more your brain develops neural circuits, rewires the brain to create these new neural circuits that support that experience. And that's the real power of meditation over just the extraordinary experiences that come with hallucinogenic drugs is that it it, it keeps it going and turns it into something um, that has real power in your life on in an ongoing basis. Right. That's interesting, the, the distinction. And what fascinates me about the study of, of meditation is even just in the experiences that I've had myself, I realized that that ability and that power is there, you know, to have like what Maslow had called the peak experience and that mm -hmm. we can have that at will. I, I want to learn how to do that. You know, I want to be able to have those experiences and to feel more connected, more at one. I mean, would you equate in your mind consciousness to what some other people like Rupert Sheldrake, when they talk about the field, 
that those are different. Those are two different things or, or no? Well, Rupert Sheldrake is um, trying to uh, suggest a way in which there is a interaction with the brain that is non-local, quantum physics oriented, uh, that essentially means we are part of a quantum field. And at this point, no one has been able to figure out how to prove or disprove Sheldrake's notion of this. What I would say is that he is intuitively suggesting something that is similar to the non-local experience that we have, which when it's applied to sports, we call the zone. Uh, and when we're in a, a creative experience, we call it a flow. And I think intuitively he's he's trying to find a explanation within the kind of known concepts of science that could explain that human experience. Um, and Maslow just discuss, uh, you know, just studied it as an experience without trying to understand the underpinnings of how it could happen. But meditation definitely leads to flow experiences. And I, I think it does so primarily because it concentrates us. Most of the time, most of the day, if we're caught up in work and the general activities of our life, we're kind of scattered. We don't stay in touch with any one thought or any one activity very long. We jump from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And we get so used to that that we think that's just the way life is. That's what day-to-day -day reality uh, entails. But by meditating regularly and learning to focus your mind, focus your being, and have thoughts and emotions subside. So they're not in this sort of constant firework show, as I call them, just one triggering the next, triggering the next, and exploding in our mind. If through meditation, we calm that firework show and learn to be really centered, to be concentrated, when you come out of meditation after having you know, learn to do that regularly, you have that same ability in your waking moments. And where I've experienced them, because I'm an author and a writer, is that my ability to focus on what I want to say has become much more effective, much more productive, much more creative, and I believe much more inspired. And so as I'm doing that, and I'm really staying focused on it and not the 29 other things that my mind could pull me away to, right, at any given moment, then you feel the flow. You, it feels wonderful just the process of working with concentration or doing anything. It could be art, could be taking a walk, could be gardening. Um, as long as you're centered in whatever it is you're doing, you can have that flow experience. And those flow experiences come naturally to people who are really super successful. 
but they also come naturally to people to, who meditate. And sometimes that that's the same thing. You know, we know famous examples like Steve Jobs liked to meditate and uh, tried to bring that creative flow into everything he did with his work. So it's a wonderful feeling. It's also highly practical and productive. And what does your meditation practice look like for someone like me who is... I mean, I'd say kind of a novice in that my meditation practice is honestly erratic, but I'm aware of it where during the day I try to take 10 to 15 minute breaks. I like to take meditative walks. You know, I find that I crave silence. Like when I first started meditating, I thought I have to have the right music and it's got to be this ambient thing. And then you realize you don't even want that. You just want the quiet. And I'd really like to supercharge my own practice to be more like you, you know, where I, I have more focus. So, you know, the things that you talk about in the book, what could you give us some takeaways today that that I can work on, that we can work on in our practice? Well, I think everybody who meditates for even a short period of time feels its benefit and it's it's quite often the case that life you know collides with it and and meditation gets uh left behind but everybody who has meditated will often say to me i just really want to get back into it and i think um the number of beginning meditators is perhaps even less than the number of people who are returning meditators and so what I say to, to, to everyone, whether beginning or, or people who want to get back into it or who want to deepen it, is be methodical. Have a technique that you use. I practice one called Hung Saw, which um, you know, I'm not sure we have enough time for me to actually teach it, but Hung Saw is a technique of watching the breath and saying a, a mantra in synchrony with the breath and just letting the breath flow as it will, but just watching it and saying hung and saw with the inhalation and exhalation. You can learn more about it um, on my website, josephselby.com. I, I have the hung saw technique taught, what you might experience. But the other thing I present in the in the website is how to establish a practice. So if you have a technique, you don't need to switch to hung saw. If you're interested in a hung saw, you might find it useful. If you don't have any technique at all, I highly recommend that you have a technique because it helps you get by the, the, the number one trouble that we all have when we sit down to meditate, which is that the mind is like a freight train. It just wants to keep thinking about all the things it has already been thinking um, yesterday and what it's going to need to do today. And the mind has been, you know, compared to the, the drunken monkey uh, and, and all sorts of other things. The stampeding elephant is the one that comes to mind for me. So you need a technique to help you get past that tendency of the mind to just want to keep galloping along. But once you have a technique, then where I think people lose their 
practice of meditation or have trouble when they begin their practice of meditation is they don't give enough thought to where in my life am I going to fit this? Am I going to do it first thing in the morning? Is that a good time for me? Am I going to do it at the end of the day? Am I going to do it right after work and before uh, I, you know, settle into a dinner routine? Find that time of the day when you really feel realistically you can do it, that it will fit into your schedule. And then think about it as something uh, that you're going to look forward to doing. Try to make it as uh, pleasant and pleasing as you possibly can. I was just talking to someone the other day when I was talking about this and they said, oh, I could do it after I take a bath. You know, for them, that was a really pleasant thought because they already have a pleasant association with taking the bath, right? Meditate somewhere regularly, same place, and make that a comfortable place to be, a happy place to be. Uh, fill it with images and uh, pictures and, you know, crystals, whatever it is that connects for you with positive feelings and that it will engender those positive feelings. So surround the whole practice with as much help as you can give it. Pick a good time, pick a good place, have pleasant feelings about it. And then don't expect to be a meditation master in your first three days. Don't, don't expect to be able to slow down the stampeding elephant first time you ever sit down. Don't expect to have amazing uh, experiences like out-of-body experiences or to see lights exploding in your, in your mind. Just expect that it's going to calm you down and slow you down a little bit. If that's the starting point, then let it be that and appreciate the value of that. You know, we rarely take even a moment in our ordinary lives to just be calm and centered. And I think it's why so many people like to build a walk into their life, a solitary walk, because you can be alone with your thoughts. You don't have uh, screens constantly telling you new things or demanding your time or wanting you to email someone. Uh, you can get away from that. So meditation is like that. It's it's you time. It, it's time just to be centered in yourself and start there. It can become so much more. It can become a source of de-stressing. So you rewire your brain not to get into these uh, reactive, uh, negatively reactive responses to the life you live in and then it starts to awaken more harmonious emotions in your life, which are wonderful. They're contentment. They're simple things, contentment, happiness. But they're really, they're the things you most want. And when you feel filled, fulfilled with those kind of harmonious emotions, then you're not trying to get that fulfillment from the wrong things. You're not trying to make people 
interact with you in the way that would fulfill you. You're not trying to have things that you think will fulfill you. Uh, all of those things are fine. They're part of your life. I'm not by any means suggesting that you, you need to get away from an ordinary life in order to have deep experiences in meditation, fulfilling experiences in meditation. It's just that the fulfilling experiences of meditation put your life in the proper perspective for you to live it well, to live it from the point of view of, well, what can I do for this person rather than what can this person do for me? And, and how can I um, take the fruits of the life I'm living and be generous with them and share them with others? Um, how can I be more creative in the things that I'm doing that are a routine part of my life or a necessary part of my life, like our job? How can I be more creative in my job rather than worrying about, you know, am I good enough? Am I going to get this deadline done? Having that feeling of being centered from meditation allows you to show up at work and say, ah, this is an opportunity. Uh, not I'm being driven by it, but how can I do it in a new and wonderful way that will be satisfying to me? So it it kind of flips your life around when you find this satisfaction in meditation uh, because you're not operating from neediness. You're not operating from tension about whether you're going to get what you think you need or want. And that's because you already have it. You already have the feeling. Right. Yep. Instead of looking for all that outside yourself from your job, from other people giving you what you think that you need, we already have that within us, right? That ability. Yeah. We don't have to look outside of ourselves. And I think that's an important message because we're so, you know, consuming all consuming society we have to have more and more and more of this we don't have enough of this i need this love from this person you know this car whatever it's like we're this big whole you know consuming and i i think that we really we need to take a look at that because we're obviously suffering from it and and your book is just so valuable because it offers readers you know these really effective meditation techniques and practices that you talk about in the book so I really hope that people check this out. You know, I think it's so beneficial. And I wanted to send people to your website and give you the chance to tell people what you're doing. Are you going to be out teaching this material? Um, not for a while. I don't have any uh, physical events as we now refer to them. <laughs> right. Um, but um, I probably will be doing... Um, class series that I will make available and you can find about out about them uh, on my website. And for those of you who might be interested in learning more about me, learning about my books, my website is uh, josephselby.com, the usual www. Um, my spelling of Selby is unusual. It's S-E-L-B-I-E rather than Y, which is the more common spelling of Selby. So it's josephselby.com. You can learn meditation technique there. You can learn about all my books. Uh, there are other articles there. And then there is access to class series that I've already done on my uh, 
my earlier books. Well, you're sharing a lot of valuable information and I've learned a lot and I'm still working my way through the book, but I'm really enjoying it. Joseph Selby, Breakthrough the Limits of the Brain, available now and definitely check out your site, Joseph Selby, S-E-L-B-I-E. And thank you so much for sharing all this with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for uh, having me on and letting me share it with people. That's the only reason that I write is uh, the, the hope that it can be helpful to people. That's funny because that's the reason I do this podcast. <laughs> I hope that it's going to be helpful. So we're, we're in the same boat. Thanks so much, Joseph. My pleasure. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.